encyclical letter, Spiritus Paracletus, on St. Jerome, September the 15th, 1920, Part 1, by Pope Benedict the 15th. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Saint Jerome and Holy Scripture, a Saint Jerome's life and labors. Since the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, had bestowed the Scriptures on the human race for their instruction in divine things, he also raised up in successive ages saintly and learned men whose task it should be to develop that treasure and so provide for the faithful plenteous consolation from the scriptures. Foremost among these teachers stands Saint Jerome. Him the Catholic Church acclaims and reveres as her greatest doctor, divinely given her for the understanding of the Bible, and now that the fifteenth centenary of his death is approaching, we would not willingly let pass so favorable an opportunity of addressing you on the debt we owe him. For the responsibility of our apostolic office impels us to set before you his wonderful example and so promote the study of Holy Scripture in accordance with the teaching of our predecessors, Leo Thirteenth and Pius Tenth, which we desire to apply more precisely still to the present needs of the Church. For St. Jerome, strenuous Catholic learned in the Scriptures, teacher of Catholics, model of virtue, world's teacher, has by his earnest and illuminative defense of Catholic doctrine on Holy Scripture left us most precious instructions. These we propose to set before you and so promote among the children of the Church, and especially among the clergy, assiduous and reverent study of the Bible. No need to remind you, venerable brethren, that Jerome was born in Stridonia, in a town on the borders of Dalmatia and Pannonia, that from his infancy he was brought up a Catholic, that after his baptism here in Rome he lived to an advanced age and devoted all his powers to studying, expounding, and defending the Bible. At Rome, he had learned Latin and Greek, and hardly had he left the school of rhetoric than he ventured on a commentary on Abdias the prophet. This youthful piece of work kindled in him such love of the Bible that he decided, like the man in the Gospel who found a treasure, to spurn any emoluments the world could provide and devote himself wholly to such studies. Nothing could deter him from this stern resolve. He left home, parents, sister, 
and relatives. He denied himself the more delicate food he had been accustomed to, and went to the east so that he might gather from studious reading of the Bible the fuller riches of Christ and true knowledge of his Savior. Jerome himself tells us in several places how assiduously he toiled. An eager desire to learn obsessed me, but I was not so foolish as to try and teach myself. At Antioch, I regularly attended the lectures of Apollinarius of Laodicea, but while I learned much from him about the Bible, I would never accept his doubtful teachings about its interpretation. From Antioch, he betook himself to the desert of Chalcis in Syria to perfect himself in his knowledge of the Bible and at the same time to curb youthful desires by means of hard study. Here he engaged a convert, you, to teach him Hebrew and Chalde. What a toil it was, how difficult I found it, how often I was on the point of giving it up in despair, and yet in my eagerness to learn, took it up again. Myself can bear witness of this, and so, too, can those who had lived with me at the time. Yet I thank God for the fruit I won from that bitter seed, lest, however, he should go idle in this desert, where there were no heretics to vex him. Jerome betook himself to Constantinople, where, for nearly three years, he studied Holy Scripture under St. Gregory, the theologian, then bishop of that see, and in the height of his fame as a teacher, while there he translated into Latin Origen's homilies on the prophets and Eusebius Chronicle. He also wrote on Isaiah's vision of the seraphim. He then returned to Rome on ecclesiastical business, and Pope Damasius admitted him into his court. However, he let nothing distract from continual occupation with the Bible and the task of copying various manuscripts, as well as answering the many questions put to him by students of both sexes. Pope Damasius had entrusted to him a most laborious task, the correction of the Latin text on the Bible. So well did Jerome carry this out, that even today men versed in such studies appreciate its value more and more. But he ever yearned for Palestine, and when the Pope died, he retired to Bethlehem, to a monastery, nigh to the cave where Christ was born. Every moment he could spare from prayer, he gave to biblical studies. Though my hair was now growing gray, and though I looked more like professor than student, yet I went to Alexandria to attend Didymus lectures. I owe him much. What I did not know, I learned. What I knew already, I did not lose 
through his different presentation of it. Men thought I had done with tutors. But when I got back to Jerusalem and Bethlehem, how hard I worked and what a price I paid for my night-time teacher, Baroninus. Like another Nicodemus, he was afraid of the use. Nor was Jerome content merely to gather up this or that teacher's words. He gathered from all quarters whatever might prove of use to him in his task. From the outset, he had accumulated the best possible copies of the Bible and the best commentators on it. But now he had worked on copies from the synagogues and from the library formed at Caesarea by Origen and Eusebius. He hoped by assiduous comparison of texts to arrive at greater certainty, touching the actual text and its meaning. With this same purpose, he went through all Palestine, for he was thoroughly convinced of the truth of what he once wrote to Domnio and Rogatien. A man will understand the Bible better if he has seen Judea with his own eyes and discover its ancient cities and sides, either under the old names or newer ones, in company with some learned Hebrews, I went through the entire land, the names of whose cities are on every Christian's lips. He nourished his soul unceasingly on his most pleasant food. He explained St. Paul's epistles. He corrected the Latin version of the Old Testament by the Greek. He translated afresh nearly all the books of the Old Testament from Hebrew into Latin. Day by day, he discussed biblical questions with the brethren who came to him and answered letters on biblical questions which poured in upon him from all sides. Besides all this, he was constantly refuting men who assailed Catholic doctrine and unity. Indeed, such was his love for Holy Scripture, that he ceased not from writing or dictating till his hand stiffened in death and his voice was silent forever. So it was that, sparing himself, neither labor nor watching nor expense, he continued to extreme old age meditating day and night beside the crib on the law of the Lord, or greater profit to the Catholic cause by his life and example in his solitude than if he had passed his life at Rome, the capital of the world. His teachings regarding Holy Scripture A. Its plenary inspiration after this preliminary account of St. Jerome's life and labors, we may now treat of his teaching on the divine dignity and absolute truth of Scripture. You will not find a page in his writings which does not show clearly that he, 
in common with the whole Catholic Church, firmly and consistently held that the sacred books, written as they were under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, have God for their author, and as such were delivered to the Church. Thus he asserts that the books of the Bible were composed at the inspiration or suggestion or even at the dictation of the Holy Spirit, even that they were written and edited by him. Yet he never questions but that the individual authors of these books worked in full freedom under the divine afflatus, each of them in accordance with their individual nature and character. Thus, he is not merely content to affirm as a general principle what indeed pertains to all the sacred writers, that they followed the Spirit of God as they wrote, in such sort that God is the principal cause of all that Scripture means and says, but he also accurately describes what pertains to each individual writer. In each case, Jerome shows us how in composition, in language, in style and mode of expression, each of them uses his own gifts and powers. Hence, he is able to portray and describe for us their individual character, almost the very futures. This is especially so in his treatment of the prophets and of St. Paul. This partnership of God and man in the production of a work in common, Jerome illustrates by the case of a workman who uses instruments for the production of his work. For he says that whatsoever the sacred authors say, is the word of God and not their own, and what the Lord says by their mouths, he says, as it were by means of an instrument. If we ask how we are to explain this power and action of God, the principal cause on the sacred writers, we shall find that St. Jerome in no wise differs from the common teaching of the Catholic Church, for he holds that God, through his grace, illumines the writer's mind regarding the particular truth which, in the person of God, he is to set before man. He holds, moreover, that God moves the writer's will, nay, even impels it to write. Finally, that God abides with him unceasingly in unique fashion until his task is accomplished, whence the saint infers the supreme excellence and dignity of scripture and declares that knowledge of it is to be likened to the treasure and the pearl beyond price, since in them are to be found the riches of Christ and silver wherewith to adorn God's house. B. Its authoritative character. Jerome also insists 
on the supereminent authority of scripture. When controversy arose, he had recourse to the Bible as a storehouse of arguments, and he used its testimony as a weapon for refuting his adversary's arguments, because he held that the Bible's witness afforded solid and irrefutable arguments. Thus, when Helvidius denied the perpetual virginity of the Mother of God, Jerome was content simply to reply, Just as we do not deny these things which are written, so do we repudiate things that are not written. That God was born in a virgin we believe, because we read it. That Mary was married after his birth, we do not believe, because we do not read it. In the same fashion, he undertakes to defend against Jovinian with precisely the same weapons, the Catholic doctrines of the virginal state, of perseverance, of abstinence, and of the merit of good works. In refuting his statements, I shall rely especially on the testimony of Scripture, lest he should grumble and complain that he has been vanquished rather by my eloquence than by the truth. So, too, when defending himself against the same healthy days, he says, He was, you might say, begged to yield to me and be led away as a willing and unresisting captive in the bonds of truth. Again, we must not follow the errors of our parents, nor of those who have gone before us. We have the authority of the scriptures and God's teaching to command us. Once more, when showing Fabiola how to deal with critics, he says, when you are really instructed in the divine scriptures and have realized that its laws and testimonies are the bonds of truth, then you can contend with adversaries. Then you will fetter them and lead them bound into captivity. Then of the foes you have made captive, you will make freed men of God. C. Its immunity from error. Jerome far assures that the immunity of a scripture from error or deception is necessarily bound up with its divine inspiration and supreme authority. He says he had learned this in the most celebrated schools, whether of East or West, and that it was taught him as the doctrine of the fathers and generally received. Thus, when at the instance of Pope Damasus, he had begun correcting the Latin text of the New Testament, and certain mannequins had vehemently attacked him for making corrections in the Gospels in face of the authority of the fathers and of general opinion. Jerome briefly replied 
that he was not so utterly stupid, nor so grossly uneducated, as to imagine that the Lord's words needed any correction, or were not divinely inspired. Similarly, when explaining Ezekiel's first vision as portraying the four Gospels, he remarks that the entire body and the back were full of eyes will be plain to anybody who realizes that there is not in the Gospels which does not shine and illumine the world by its splendor, so that even things that seem trifling and unimportant shine with the majesty of the Holy Spirit. What he has said here of the Gospels, he applies in his commentaries to the rest of the Lord's words. He regards it as the very rule and foundation of Catholic interpretation. Indeed, for Jerome, a true prophet was to be distinguished from a false by this very note of truth. The Lord's words are true. For him to say, it means that it is. Again, Scripture cannot lie. It is wrong to say Scripture lies. Nay, it is impious even to admit the very notion of error where the Bible is concerned. The apostles, he says, are one thing. Other writers, that is, profane writers, are another. The former always tell the truth, the latter, as being mere man, sometimes error. And though many things are said in the Bible which seem incredible, yet they are true. In this word of truth, you cannot find things or statements which are contradictory. There is nothing discordant nor conflicting. Consequently, when a scripture seems to be in conflict with itself, both passages are true despite their diversity. Holding principles like this, Jerome was compelled when he discovered apparent discrepancies in the sacred books to use every endeavor to unravel the difficulty if he felt he had not satisfactorily settled the problem, he would return to it again and again, not always, indeed, with the happiest results. Yet, he would never accuse the sacred writers of the slightest mistake, that we leave to impious folk like Celsus, Porphyry, and Julian. Here, he is in full agreement with Augustine, who wrote to Jerome that the sacred books alone had he been wont to accord such honor and reverence as firmly to believe that none of the writers had ever fallen into any error, and that consequently, if in the said books he came across anything which seemed to run counter to the truth, he did not think that that was really the case, but either his copy was defective or 
that the translator had made a mistake, or again, that he himself had failed to understand. He continues, Nor do I deem that you think otherwise. Indeed, I absolutely decline to think that you would have people read your own books in the same way as they read those of the prophets and apostles. The idea that this latter could contain any errors is impious. St. Jerome's teaching on this point serves to confirm and illustrate what our predecessors of happy memory, Leo XIII, declared to be the ancient and traditional belief of the Church, touching the absolute immunity of Scripture from error. So far is it from being the case that error can be compatible with inspiration, that, on the contrary, it not only of its very nature precludes the presence of error, but as necessarily excludes it and forbids it as God. The supreme truth necessarily cannot be the author of error. Then, after giving the definitions of the councils of Florence and Trent, confirmed by the Council of the Vatican, Pope Leo continues, Consequently, it is not to the point to suggest that the Holy Spirit used man as his instruments for writing, and that, therefore, while no error is referable to the primary author, it may well be due to the inspired authors themselves. For by supernatural power, the Holy Spirit so steered them and moved them to write, so stood by them as they wrote, that their minds could rightly conceive only those and all those things which he himself bade them conceive. Only such things could they faithfully commit to writing and aptly express with unerring truth, else God would not be the author of the entirety of sacred scripture. How certain modern views compare with his teaching. A. There are no such things as primary and secondary elements in the Bible. But, although these words of our predecessors leave no room for doubt or dispute, it grieves us to find that not only men outside, but even children of the Catholic Church. Nay, what is a peculiar sorrow to us, even clerics and professors of sacred learning, who, in their own conceit, either openly repudiate or at least attack in secret the Church's teaching on this point. We warmly command, of course, those who, with the assistance of critical methods, seek to discover new ways of explaining the difficulties in Holy Scripture, whether for their own guidance or to help others. But we remind them that they will only come to miserable grief 
if they neglect our predecessors' injunctions and overstep the limits set by the fathers. Yet, no one can pretend that certain recent writers really adhere to these limitations. For while conceiving that inspiration extends to every phrase, and indeed to every single word of Scripture, yet by endeavoring to distinguish between what they style the primary or religious and the secondary or profane elements in the Bible, they claim that the fact of inspiration, namely, absolute truth and immunity from error are to be restricted to that primary or religious element. Their notion is that only what concerns religion is intended and taught by God in Scripture, and that all the rest, things concerning profane knowledge, the garments in which divine truth is presented, God merely permits and even leaves to the individual authors greater or less knowledge. Small wonder, then, that in their view, a considerable number of things occur in the Bible, touching physical science, history, and the like, which cannot be reconciled with modern progress in science. Some even maintain that these views do not conflict with what our predecessor laid down since, so they claim. He had said the secret writers spoke in accordance with the external, and thus deceptive appearance of things in nature. But the pontiff's own words show that this is a rash and false deduction, for sound philosophy teaches that the senses can never be deceived as regards their own proper and immediate object. Therefore, from the merely external appearances of things, of which, of course, we have always to take account as Leo XIII, following in the footsteps of St. Augustine and St. Thomas, most wisely remarks, we can never conclude that there is any error in sacred scripture. Moreover, our predecessor sweeping aside all such distinctions between what these critics are pleased to call primary and secondary elements, says in no ambiguous fashion that those who fancy that, when it is a question of the truth of certain expressions, we have not got to consider so much what God said as why he said it, are very far indeed from the truth. He also teaches that divine inspiration extends to every part of the Bible without the slightest exception, and that no error can occur in the inspired text. It would be wholly impious to limit inspiration to certain portions only of a scripture, or to concede that the sacred authors themselves 
could have erred. B. Nor can we allow of a relative form of truth in it. Those two who held that the historical portions of Scripture do not rest on the absolute truth of the facts, but merely upon what they are pleased to term their relative truth, namely, what people they commonly thought are no less than are the aforementioned critics out of harmony with the church's teaching, which is endorsed by the testimony of Jerome and other fathers. Yet they are not afraid to deduce such views from the words of Leo XIII on the ground that he allowed that the principles he had laid down touching the things of nature could be applied to historical things as well. Hence, they maintain that precisely as the sacred writers spoke of physical things according to appearances, so, too, while ignorant of the facts, they narrated them in accordance with general opinion or even on baseless evidence. Neither do they tell us the sources whence they derived their knowledge, nor do they make other people's narrative their own. Such views are clearly false and constitute a calumny on our predecessor. After all, what analogy is there between physics and history? For whereas physics are concerned with sensible appearances, and must consequently square with phenomena, history of the contrary must square with facts, since history is the written account of events as they actually occurred. If we were to accept such views, how could we maintain the truth insisted on throughout Leo's thirteenth encyclical, that the sacred narrative is absolutely free from error? And if Leo thirteenth that say that we can apply to history and cognate subjects the same principles which hold good for science, he yet does not lay this down as a universal law, but simply says that we can apply a like line of argument when refuting the fallacies of adversaries and defending the historical truth of a scripture from their assaults. C. Is the Bible genuine history? Nor do modern innovators stop here. They even try to claim St. Jerome as a patron of their views on the ground that he maintained that historic truth and sequence were not observed in the Bible, precisely as things actually took place, but in accordance with what man thought at that time, and that he even held that this was the true norm for history. A strange distortion of St. Jerome's words. He does not say 
that when giving us an account of events, the writer was ignorant of the truth and simply adapted the false views then current. He merely says that in giving names to persons, all things, he followed general custom. Thus, the evangelist calls Saint Joseph the father of Jesus, but what he meant by the title father here is abundantly clear from the whole context. For Saint Jerome, the true norm of history is this, when it is question of such appellatives as father, etc., and when there is no danger of error, then a writer must adapt the ordinary forms of speech, simply because such forms of speech are in ordinary use more than this. Jerome maintains that belief in the biblical narrative is as necessary to salvation as his belief in the doctrines of the faith. Thus, in his commentary on the epistle to Philemon, he says, What I mean is this, thus any man believe in God the Creator. He cannot do so unless he first believe that the things written of God's saints are true. He then gives examples from the Old Testament and adds, Now, unless a man believes all this and other things too, which are written of the saints, he cannot believe in the God of the saints. Thus, St. Jerome is in complete agreement with St. Augustine, who sums up the general belief of Christian antiquity when he says, Holy Scripture is invested in supreme authority by reason of its sure and momentous teachings regarding the faith. Whatever, then, it tells us of Enoch, Elias, and Moses, that we believe. We do not, for instance, believe that God's Son was born of the Virgin Mary simply because he could not otherwise have appeared in the flesh and walked amongst men as Fastas would have it. But we believe it simply because it is written in Scripture. And unless we believe in Scripture, we can neither be Christians nor be saved. D. Neither can we admit the theory of so-called tacit quotations. Then there are other assailants of Holy Scripture who misuse principles which are only sound if kept within due bounds. In order to overturn the fundamental truth of the Bible and thus destroy Catholic teaching handed down by the fathers, if Jerome were living now, he would sharpen his keenest controversial weapons against people who set aside what is the mind and judgment of the church, and take too ready a refuge in such notions as 
implicit quotations, or pseudo-historical narratives, or in kinds of literature, in the Bible, such as cannot be reconciled with the entire and perfect truth of God's word, or who suggest such origins of the Bible as must inevitably weaken, if not destroy, its authority. What we can say of man who in expounding the very Gospels so whittle away the human trust we should repose in it as to overturn divine faith in it. They refuse to allow that the things which Christ said or did have come down to us unchanged and entire through witnesses who carefully committed to writing what they themselves had seen or heard. They maintain, and particularly in their treatment of the fourth gospel, that much is due, of course, to the evangelists, who, however, added much from their own imaginations, but much, too, is due to narratives compiled by the faithful at other periods, the result, of course, being that the twin streams now flowing in the same channel cannot be distinguished from one another, not that did Jerome and Augustine and the other doctors of the church understand the historical trustworthiness of the Gospels. Yet, of it one wrote, He that saw it hath given testimony, and his testimony is true, and he knoweth that he saith true, that you also may believe. So, too, Saint Jerome, after rebuking the heretical framers of the apocryphal Gospels for attempting rather to fill up the story than to tell it truly. He says of the canonical scriptures, None can doubt but that what is written took place. Here, again, he is in fullest harmony with Augustine, who so beautifully says, These things are true. They are faithfully and truthfully written of Christ, so that whosoever believes his gospel may be thereby instructed in the truth and misled by no lie. E. None of these notions are compatible with traditional views on the Bible, nor indeed with Christ's own method of employing it. All this shows us how earnestly we must strive to avoid as children of the church this insane freedom in ventilating opinions which the fathers were careful to shun. This we shall more readily achieve if you, venerable brethren, will make both clergy and laity committed to your care by the Holy Spirit release that neither Jerome nor the other fathers of the church 
learned their doctrine, touching Holy Scripture, save in the school of the Divine Master himself. We know what he felt about Holy Scripture when he said, It is written, and the Scripture must needs be fulfilled. We have therein an argument which admits of no exception and which should put an end to all controversy. Yet it is worth while dwelling on this point a little. When Christ preached to the people, whether on the mount by the lakeside, or in the synagogue of Nazareth, or his own city of Capernaum, he took his points and his arguments from the Bible, from the same source, came his weapons when disputing with the scribes and Pharisees. Whether teaching or disputing, he quotes from all parts of Scripture and takes his examples from it. He quotes it as an argument which must be accepted. He refers without any discrimination of sources to the stories of Jonas and the Ninevites, of the Queen of Shiva and Solomon, of Elias and Elysius, of David and of Noah, of Lot and the Sodomites, and even of Lot's wife. How solemn his witness to the truth of the sacred books, one jot or one tittle shall not pass of the law till all be fulfilled, and again the scripture cannot be broken, and consequently he therefore that shall break one of these least commandments, and shall so teach man, shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven, before his ascension, too, when he would steep his apostles in the same doctrine. He opened their understanding, that they might understand the scriptures, and he said to them, thus it is written, and thus it behoved Christ to suffer, and rise again from the dead the third day. In a word, then, Jerome's teaching on the super-excellence and truth of Scripture is Christ's teaching. Therefore we exhort all the church's children, and especially those whose duty it is to teach in seminaries, to follow closely in St. Jerome's footsteps. If they will but do so, they will learn to prize, as he prized the treasure of the scriptures, and will derive from them most abundant and blessed fruit. D. How to study the Bible a. We must love it and read it. Now, if we make use of the greatest of doctors as our guide and teacher, we shall derive from so doing not only the gains signalized above, but 
others too, which cannot be regarded as trifling or few. What these gains are, venerable brethren, we will set out briefly at the outset, then we are deeply impressed by the intense love of the Bible which St. Jerome exhibits in his whole life and teaching. Both are steeped in the Spirit of God. This intense love of the Bible he was ever striving to kindle in the hearts of the faithful, and his words on this subject to the maiden Demetrius are really addressed to us all. Love the Bible, and wisdom will love you. Love it, and it will preserve you. Honor it, and it will embrace you. These are the jewels which you should wear on your breast and in your ears. His unceasing reading of the Bible and his painstaking study of each book, nay, of every phrase and word, gave him a knowledge of the text such as no other ecclesiastical writer of old possessed. It is due to this familiarity with the text and to his own acute judgment that the Vulgate version Jerome made is, in the judgment of all capable men, preferable to any other ancient version, since it appears to give us the sense of the original more accurately and with greater elegance than they. The said Vulgate approved by so many centuries of use in the church, was pronounced by the Council of Trent, authentic, and the same council insisted that it was to be used in teaching and in the liturgy. If God in his mercy grants us life, we sincerely hope to see an amended and faithfully restored edition. We have no doubt that when this arduous task, entrusted by our predecessor, Pius X, to the Benedictine order has been completed, it will prove of great assistance in the study of the Bible. But to return to St. Jerome's love of the Bible, this is so conspicuous in his letters that they almost seem woven out of scripture texts, and as St. Bernard found no taste in things which did not echo the most sweet name of Jesus, so no literature made any appeal to Jerome unless it derived its light from holy scripture. Thus he wrote to Paulinus, formerly senator, and even cancel, and only recently converted to the faith. If only you had this foundation, knowledge of Scripture, nay, more, if you would but let Scripture give the finishing touches to your work, I should find nothing more beautiful, 
more learned, even nothing more Latin, than your volumes. If you could but add to your wisdom and eloquence, study of and real acquaintance with Holy Scripture, we should speedily have to acknowledge you a leader amongst us. How we are to seek for this great treasure, given as it is by our Father in heaven, for our solace during this earthly pilgrimage. Saint Jerome's example shows us, first, we must be well prepared and must possess a good will. Thus Jerome himself, immediately on his baptism, determined to remove whatever might prove a hindrance to his ambitions in this respect. Like the man who found a treasure and, for joy thereof, went and sold all that he had and bought that field. So did Jerome say farewell to the idle pleasures of this passing world. He went into the desert, and since he realized what risks he had run in the past through the allurements of vice, he adapted a most severe style of life. With all obstacles thus removed, he prepared his soul for the knowledge of Jesus Christ, and for putting on him who was meek and humble of heart. But he went through what Augustine also experienced when he took up the study of Scripture, for the latter has told us how steeped as a youth in Cicero and the profane authors, the Bible seemed to me unfit to be compared with Cicero. My swelling pride shrunk from its modest garb, while my gaze could not pierce to what the latter hid. Of a truth, Scripture was meant to grow up with the childlike, but then I could not be childlike. Turgid eloquence appealed mightily to me. So, too, Saint Jerome, even though withdrawn into the desert, he still found such delight in profane literature that at first he failed to discern the lowly Christ in his lowly scriptures. Wretched that I was, I read Cicero even before I broke my fast, and after the long night watches, when memory of my past sins wrung tears from my soul, even then I took up my platters. Then perhaps I would come to my senses and would start reading the prophets. But their uncouth language made me shiver, and since blind eyes do not see the light, I blamed the sun, and not my own eyes. But in a brief space, Jerome became so enamored of the folly of the cross that he himself serves as a proof of the extent to which a humble and devout frame of mind is conducive to the understanding 
of Holy Scripture. He realizes that in expounding Scripture, we need God's Holy Spirit. He saw that one cannot otherwise read or understand it, that the Holy Spirit by whom it was written the mass. Consequently, he was ever humbly praying for God's assistance and for the light of the Holy Spirit and asking his friends to do the same for him. We find him commending to the divine assistance and to his brethren's prayers, his commentaries on various books as he began them and then rendering God due thanks when completed. B. He also shows us the need of a lively Catholic faith. As he trusted to God's grace, so too did he rely upon the authority of his predecessors. What I have learned, I did not teach myself, a wretchedly presumptuous teacher, but I learned from illustrious men in the church. Again, in studying scripture, I never trusted to myself, to Theophilus, Bishop of Alexandria. He imparted the rule he had laid down for his own student life. It has always been my custom to fight for the prerogatives of a Christian, not to overpass the limits set by the fathers, always to bear in mind that Roman faith praised by the apostle. He never paid submissive homage to the church, our supreme teacher through the Roman pontiffs, thus with a view to putting an end to the controversy raging in the East concerning the mystery of the Holy Trinity. He submitted the question to the Roman See for settlement and wrote from the Syrian desert to Pope Damasus as follows. I decided, therefore, to consult the chair of Peter and that Roman faith which the apostle praised. I ask for my soul's food from that city where I first put on the garment of Christ. I, who follow no other leader save Christ, associate myself with your blessedness in communion, that is, with the chair of Peter, for I know the church was built upon that rock. I beg you to settle this dispute. If you desire, it shall not be afraid to say there are three hypostases. If it is your wish, let them draw up a symbol of faith, subsequent to that of Nicaea, and let us Orthodox praise God in the same form of words as the Arians employ. And in his next letter, meanwhile I keep crying out, any man who is joined to Peter's chair, he is my man, since he had learned this rule of faith from his study of the Bible. He was able to refute a false interpretation of a biblical text 
with the simple remark, Yes, but the Church of God does not admit that. When again, Vigilantius quoted an apocryphal book, Jerome was content to reply, A book I have never so much as read. For what is the good of soiling one's hands with a book the Church does not receive? With his strong insistence on adhering to the integrity of the faith, it is not to be wondered at that he attacked vehemently those who left the Church. He promptly regarded them as his own personal enemies. To put it briefly, he says, I have never spared heretics, and have always striven to regard the charged enemies as my own. To Rufinus he writes, There is one point in which I cannot agree with you. You ask me to spare heretics, or, in other words, not to prove myself a Catholic. Yet, at the same time, Jerome deplored the lamentable state of heretics and adjured them to return to their sorrowing mother, the one source of salvation. He prayed, too, with all earnestness for the conversation of those who had quitted the church and put away the Holy Spirit's teaching to follow their own notions. Was there ever a time, venerable brethren, when there was greater call than now for us all, lay and cleric alike, to imbibe the spirit of this greatest of doctors? For there are many contumacious folk now who sneer at the authority and government of God, who has revealed himself and of the church which teaches. You know, for Leo the Thirteenth warned us how insistently men fight against us. You know the arms and arts they rely upon. It is your duty, then, to train as many really fit defenders of this holiest of causes as you can. They must be ready to combat not only those who deny the existence of the supernatural order altogether and are thus led to deny the existence of any divine revelation or inspiration, but those too who, through an itching desire for novelty, venture to interpret the sacred books as though they were of purely human origin. Those too who scoff at opinions held of old in the Church, or who, through contempt of its teaching office, either wreck little of or silently disregard, or at least obstinately endeavor to adapt to their own views the constitutions of the Apostolic See, or the decisions of the Pontifical Biblical Commission. Would that all Catholics would cling to St. Jerome's golden rule and obediently listen to their mother's words. So, 
as modestly to keep within the bounds marked out by the fathers and ratified by the church to return however to the question of the formation of biblical students we must lay the foundations in piety and humility of mind only when we have done that does saint jerome invite us to study the bible in the first place he insists in second and out on daily reading on the text provided he says our bodies are not the slaves of sin wisdom will come to us but exercise your mind feed it daily with holy scripture and again we have got then to read holy scripture assiduously we have got to meditate on the law of god day and night so that as expert money changers we may be able to detect false coin from true for matrons and maidens alike he lays down the same rule thus writing to the roman matron lita about her daughter's training he says every day she should give you a definite account of her bible reading for her the bible must take the place of silks and jewels let her learn the psalter first and find her recreation in its songs let her learn from solomon's proverbs the way of life from ecclesiastes how to trample on the world in jab she will find an example of patient virtue thence let her pass to the gospels they should always be in her hands she should steep herself in the acts of the epistles and when she has enriched her soul with these treasures she should commit to memory the prophets the heptateuch kings and chronicles esdras and esther then she can learn the canticle of canticles without any fear he says the same to eustachium read assiduously and learn as much as you can let sleep find you holding your bible and when your head nods let it be resting on the sacred page when he sent eustachium the epitaph he had composed for her mother paula he especially praises that holy woman for having so whole-heartedly devoted herself and her daughter to bible study that she knew the bible through and through and had it committed to memory he continues i will tell you another thing about her though evil disposed people may cavil at it she determined to learn hebrew a language which i myself with immense labor and toil from my youth upwards have only partly learned and which i even now there not cease studying lest it should quit me but paula learned it and so well that she could chant 
the psalms in Hebrew, and could speak it too, without any trace of a Latin accent. We can see the same thing even now in her daughter Eustachium. He tells us as much the same of Marcella, who also knew the Bible exceedingly well, and none can fail to see what profit and sweet tranquility must result in well-disposed souls from such devout reading of the Bible. Whosoever comes to it in piety, faith, and humility, and with a determination to make progress in it, will assuredly find therein, and will eat the bread that comes down from heaven. He will, in his own person, experience the truth of David's words, the heaven and uncertain things of thy wisdom thou hast made manifest to me. For this table of the divine word that really contain holy teaching, teach us the true faith, and lead us unfalteringly beyond the veil into the holy of holies. Hence, as far as in us lies, we, venerable brethren, shall, with Saint Jerome as our guide, never desist from urging the faithful to read daily the Gospels, the Acts, and the Epistles, so as to gather thence food for their souls. Our thoughts naturally turn just now to the society of St. Jerome, which we ourselves were instrumental in founding. Its success has gladdened us, and we trust that the future will see a great impulse given to it. The object of this society is to put into the hands of as many people as possible the Gospels and Acts, so that every Christian family may have them and become accustomed to reading them. This we have much at heart, for we have seen how useful it is. We earnestly hope, then, that similar societies will be founded in your dioceses and affiliated to the parent society here. Commendation, too, is due to Catholics in other countries who have published the entire New Testament, as well as selected portions of the Old in neat and simple form, so as to popularize their use. Much gain must accrue to the Church of God when numbers of people thus approach this table of heavenly instruction which the Lord provided through the ministry of his prophets, apostles, and doctors for the entire Christian world. End of Encyclical Letter Spiritus Paracletus on St. Jerome September the 15th, 1920 Part 1 by Pope Benedict the 15th